WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Tonight on the show, we'll be talking about Chinese medicine and the healing power of tea with the owners of East Lansing's Wanderers Tea House. Also hear how a Lansing resident is on a mission to walk every single street in the city and blog about it. But first, the news. In World News Today, Rupert Murdoch has said he cannot be held responsible for the scandal at the News of the World, saying he was let down by people he trusted, according to the BBC. The News Corporation boss said he was not aware of the extent of phone hacking there and had clearly been misled by some of his staff. His son James apologized to victims, saying hacking was inexcusable. The hearing was the first time Rupert Murdoch has faced direct scrutiny by members of parliament in his 40-year UK media career. And in national news, a U.S. medical advisory group recommended providing women free birth control and other preventative health services under the nation's health care overhaul, according to Reuters. The Institute of Medicine report, commissioned by the Obama administration, recommended that all U.S.-approved birth control methods, including the morning-after pill, be added to the federal government's list of preventative health services. And in Michigan news, the median income for Michigan households has dropped by more than $9,000 over the past decade. Only one other state, Hawaii, has seen a bigger loss in income, according to Michigan Radio. Michigan's median household income in 2009 was just over $45,000, according to a survey by the U.S. Census Bureau. When adjusted for inflation, the median income in 2000 was around $54,500, according to the Bureau's supplemental survey. And... Artists in Seattle and Philadelphia have been painting large murals on abandoned buildings in an effort to revitalize neighborhoods. Philadelphia, for example, has around 2,000 murals to help brighten the city. Here's a story I did on how a Detroit artist is bringing color to the Motor City with his brush strokes. It's a sunny afternoon in Detroit. Cars drive by with windows rolled down. Groups of people are chatting and laughing with one another on the sidewalk. On this particular block, many of the buildings are covered with murals, some big, some small. On the side of one building are the words Revitalize Detroit in elaborate lettering. In addition to the paintings, colorful wood carvings of animals and butterflies line the street and hang from trees. But this area didn't always look so welcoming. It was rough. I mean, it was, you know, I got carjacked over here in 19, I think it was 99. That's Chaz Miller. He's the guy behind public artworks. That's Works with a Z. It's a nonprofit organization based in Old Redford, a working class neighborhood in Detroit. Miller's mission is to revitalize Detroit by painting murals across the city. He's only been painting here for a few years, and he's already seeing a difference. And there would be so many people running up to you to sell you drugs, prostitution. It was just bad. The alley smelled bad. Now, literally, at nighttime, we have kids playing in the alley. Miller grew up in Detroit. After high school, he moved away to Ohio to go to art school and work in the commercial art industry. He moved back in 2007 and says the city looked dark and gray and wanted to give it color. He started on little projects like painting homes and bathrooms, but eventually he wanted something more. Miller decided he would dedicate his time to painting murals and focus his efforts in Old Redford. Miller says art has helped this area come to life by creating a sense of pride. He says his murals have even brought in new businesses. So you want to create a place, a sense of place, and then that's actually how you start rebuilding the community with the art because now 
with that care, people feel like, okay, somebody's taking pride, somebody cares about this neighborhood, now maybe I'm willing to invest. So now we have five, five new businesses that are open up on this immediate area. But to no surprise, not everyone in this neighborhood thinks art can save Detroit. Paul Bologna owns a barbershop just a few doors down from Miller's studio. He's been working here since the late 1950s. He says thousands of kids used to come from the suburbs to watch movies at the historic Redford Theater while their parents shopped at the many businesses that lined the street. He says that's not the case anymore. Bologna says while he has noticed the murals, he doesn't think art can bring in revenue to the city like businesses do. It's better than it needs to be. The place is a little more cleaner. The people is different than they were there before. But uh, still, it's not bringing up to what it used to be. It will never be what it used to be. David McRae grew up in Old Redford. He's an intern at Detroit Hope Community of Christ, a church nearby. I caught up with him after he was getting a tour of Miller's studio with other church members. He thinks Miller's paintings have made a difference. So, yeah, I definitely appreciate all the artwork and it's uplifting to those people who typically feel that Detroit is down. You know, people are sad, no jobs and all this and that. And these people are like, you know what? It's okay. Beyond all the garbage and all the downtrodden people, it's okay because we care. And I get all of that, everything I just said, from just seeing these murals around every now and then. So I really do appreciate it. McRae believes that seeing art around the city gives people hope, and revitalization happens one step at a time. Chaz Miller, the guy behind the painting, says his next art project is to create a series of large murals on four- and five-story buildings in downtown Detroit. He wants people in the area to help out and paint what he calls love letters to Detroit across the city. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emily Fox. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Last October, a tea house opened on Grand River Avenue in East Lansing. Now, this isn't your average tea house. The owners are certified in oriental medicine and know the science behind the dozens of teas they sell. To talk about Wanderers Tea House, our co-owners, Michael Spano and Elizabeth Marazita, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Emily. So just to start off, kind of talk us through your your career paths and what led you to open up Wanderers Tea House here in East Lansing. Um, well, in uh, 1999, uh, 1998, I uh, left my corporate job in the restaurant world and um, moved to Seattle and studied Chinese medicine. And um, after studying there um, and teaching at Bester University, um, we went to China many, many times as part of uh, exchange programs and to study and to learn. And one of the things you notice about people in China, what we call the pubs of China, are the tea houses. And you go into the tea houses and everybody's drinking tea. They consider it part of their everyday life and health. Um, and just by living there, you kind of start to learn to tea. Every professor has one way to show you a different tea and a different way to drink it. And you get I got very curious about it and just started doing the same thing. I felt better. I wasn't as wired and hot strung up as coffee got me. Um, I felt uh, much better drinking tea. So when I came came back um, to the United States um, as a practicing herbalism, which is, you know, we know acupuncture as a part of Chinese medicine, but herbalism is the strongest part as well. Um, I decided to incorporate the two. So upon um, 
I was practicing in, uh, in Europe for a while, and then moving back here, we decided to open up a tea house and decided to bring this uh, tea from around the world to the community with an understanding of it being healthy, but also that the understanding that um, it's something you can drink every day. Um, you don't have to make great efforts in life just to do healthy things for yourself um, and to focus it towards um, the, po the population that needs to sit, relax, look at the walls, enjoy the photos, and just kind of, you know, just be at peace with your tea, you know. <laughs> so that was kind of my motivation, as one person put it the other day, uh, to treat the, treat the healthy. And uh, I kind of enjoy that idea of every day coming in and treating the healthy. Um, and, and hopefully they, uh, um, you know, I, we, they taste some good teas, some very unique teas from, you know, around the world. It, tea is like, um, it, it's just a leaf. But, you know, it's just like saying wine is just a grape. The whole processing of the how, where it comes from, the altitude, all of this has to do with flavor, consistency, health benefits, all of these things. And, um, you know, it's just a, it's also a challenge to find something somebody likes, <laughs> you know, with 50, you know, with all these different things, you can always find something for somebody and that, you know, and, and just give people a healthy choice. And that was the idea. That was the motivation. Um, just seeing, you know, so much illness and so much um, people who are way imbalanced over time, just give people the option at a young age or an older age. And it's my age. And it's never too late to start just a healthy option of a something to sit and relax with. And Elizabeth, how about you? I, I hear that you have an interesting background in, in banking, from the banking world all the way to herbal medicine. That's right. Well, I'm a Michigan native, and uh, in Expo 67, 1967, I stayed with my grandparents in the summer, and my grandmother said, Elizabeth, we're going to have an afternoon tea. And that was the beginning of my love affair with tea, because I sat down with my brother and sister and my grandmother and had tea, and it was just a very nurturing community, family community event. And after that, I spent the last uh, 30 years as a banker, as an investment banker, commercial banker in Latin America and Europe and Asia. And I think every meeting we had, be it in Argentina or in India or in Thailand or Malaysia, Beijing, Shanghai, they would not serve us coffee. They served us tea. And for me, it was a wonderful uh, way to break the ice and to learn a bit about how one can take care of oneself. The process I also learned about Chinese medicine and Tai Chi, and that um, brought about my meeting Michael in 1899 and my change of career. That would have been quite an old yeah, yeah. He has been around for a long time. Tea has some great benefits. <laughs> it certainly does, longevity being one. Uh, so really, for me, the, the wandering change to another career from banking to Chinese medicine to coming back home, my 360-degree return to East Lansing, the Lansing community is not, it makes a lot of sense to me that I come back where I started started with my grandmother in northern Michigan in Sheboygan drinking tea. So as Michael says, it's really being here to share with the community something we believe, which is wellness and digging the well when you're um, well and not uh, ridden with disease. So both of you are either certified or a doctor of acupuncture and oriental medicine. Can you talk about what is oriental medicine? Oriental medicine is... Um 
Uh, see, there's, there's no specific medicine. It's very specific in that um, it incorporates acupuncture, um, herbal medicine, which is probably the more dynamic field of, Chinese, of oriental medicine, um, because we don't use this herb is good for that. If you come to see somebody as an herbalist in Chinese medicine, you might get an herbal formula of 21 different herbs. So everything needs to balance out. We look at the complete whole being of what's going on in your body. If you get f- this cold or flus, I'll give you an example. If we get cold and flus every fall, something's wrong. And the f- number one with the season, the fall, um, that may affect the lung. So we look at the lung. We look at how you breathe. We look at how you stand. What is the rest of the year? It's okay, but this lung, def- this lung problem, this respiratory. But I'm not just talking about this big organ in your body. But there's a whole um, gestalt to it. There's a whole belief behind it, and that's what we treat. Um, we will we'll go near there. But then when the lung is impaired, some of the herbs for that are a little drying, so we have to have moistening herbs as well. So there's this whole um, dynamic of what's going on. Um, also with uh, oriental medicine, it's uh, physical work. So it's twina, similar to massage, but just more focused on exactly where in the body the problem's going on. So if it's pain, also talk about the lungs, the cold, there's certain things that might need to get moved or in that respect. Um, from a Chinese medicine standpoint, we look at the whole person, everything they're doing, how they feel, um, as well as what's wrong. You know, there could be imbalances in the body. It's always wonderful when somebody comes with a Western diagnosis because then we have a good place to start. <laughs> you know, we know what's going on already um, to some degree. Um, and then we just take it. We just take it from our perspective. And you um, actually have undergone acupuncture, haven't you? I've been getting acupuncture. Um, gosh, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I've been getting acupuncture for um, probably about 24 years. And, and talk about how that how that works. Um, acupuncture is, uh, well, Chinese medicine, our acupuncture, is based on, um, uh, is based on the meridian system of the body. So in the body, when we look at the body, there are 12 different channels or organ systems that govern the body. Um, and when we, when we take acupuncture, we look at um, certain points have certain um, have certain effects. So we look at the points, we look, we look at what's wrong with the body, and we try to manipulate the energy in those points to kind of balance the body out. And how we know it's balanced is by changes in the pulse, the tongue, the affect, um, among many other things. So... Again, I'm summing up Chinese. I'm summing up two thousand years in, of study. In what, in what has acupuncture done for you? For me, acupuncture. Um, it was interesting because when I was real young, I would probably spend about six months a year um, with a mask on. Uh, because of severe allergies. And back when I was younger, there was pretty much one drug on the market and it made you into a zombie. If anybody's ever taken antihistamines or Benadryl, that was pretty much all that was on the market. Um, And I got tired of feeling like a zombie all year long. So all summer long, um, I had the benefit of growing up on the beach. So at least I had that aspect to get away from all the pollen. Um, But um, so I decided when I was 18, because my parents weren't into it, when I was 18, I went to an acupuncturist to handle it. And within really six months, I got rid of about 95% of it. Um, every once in a while, I get a little flare-up, and then we deal with it. But it's not 100 days a year. It's maybe one or two. Um, so it's radically changed over the years. So going back to tea, um, I first heard about you guys um, from my roommate. She came in, and she um, she was a... 
she's currently a vocalist at, at MSU. She's a um, vocal performance major. So really into, you know, you know, very strict, you know, get enough sleep at night, make sure you don't, you know, overindulge in alcohol or all these things and be very good with your body because your body is your instrument. So I think she was sick one day and she came in and she told you, I believe, mm -hmm. Michael, all, all her symptoms and you and you just whipped up this roofer and you explained <laughs> all these different herbs and what they would do for her. And so I looked on your website and I, and I see you have certain teas, um, at Wander Tea House. One is memory tea. Mm -hmm. There's a hangover tea Absolutely. and an anti-stress tea. Can you talk about one of these and, and the herbs that go in it and how they affect you in these ways? Sure. Um, well, we could take, uh, what was the first one you said there? There was memory tea. Ah, the memory tea. So the memory tea, um, Basically, uh, I hate to tell you all, but you still have to study. Um, but the memory take contains um, three things. Um, one is for stress, because one of the things that stops us from remembering is for stress. Um, so we add a little bit of uh, hibiscus flower, which contains, and a little bit of lemon, which kind of eases stress in Chinese medicine, as we say, moves the liver. It kind of breaks up that stress that keeps us from thinking. Um, we also add a couple of herbs that are what we call kidney tonics, are good for the memory. Ones we know today, like ginkgo biloba um, and go to cola. Both herbs are excellent for kind of opening the body. We know them as kind of mild vasodilators from a Western perspective, but they increase blood flow. They're just wonderful for just as well as calming the body, you know, for the first herbs I talked about as increasing blood flow, just increasing awareness and long-term memory advantages. And the third one is actually alfalfa and um, bilberry, which is good for retinal regeneration. Bilberry is one of the, um, bilberry leaf is one of the, bilberry fruit, excuse me, is one of the um, herbs used by the Royal Air Force, especially became famous in World War II when they would fly night vision. They would fly during night. They would they swore by it to increase their night vision. And today we're still using it as an herbalist. So that gives you an idea of what the memory tea is. One is to help the body put it in. One is to kind of help also remembering when you're shoving it into your ears and into your eyes. And one is to help the eyes from getting tired and fatigued. So these are the three things. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners out there, since we are a college radio station, some of them <laughs> may want to know what's in hangover tea. Oh, uh, hangover tea. Okay. Um, you know, the best thing for hangover is lots of water and sleep, of course. But um, the hangover tea contains white willow bark. Um, I'm giving all my formulas away, but it's online anyway. White willow bark, <laughs> white willow bark um, is basically what aspirin has been derived for from um, over history. Acetyl salicylic, which is the chemical name for aspirin, has been derived from white willow bark. Um, works wonders. Doesn't cause any stomach upset when you take it as a whole herb that aspirin may cause. Uh, it also has phenylcene and anise, which are good for um, nausea, um, carminatives. Uh, we also have in there... Um, a little bit of green tea, a little caffeine is good um, when you're hungover. Uh, not too much. Don't go slugging coffee. You'll probably just wind up throwing up. Uh, but a little caffeine is good. Um, so those are the three major components of that. So one to keep you to kind of ease the stomach, the other one to kind of nasty headache, make it go away, and another one to uh, kind of just a little caffeine to wake you up a bit. So... Uh, we're kind of talking about, you know, I feel like tea has a big culture around it. And you guys have traveled mm -hmm. all over the world um, and, and you know, in the pursuit of, of learning about tea. So 
I'm curious, when, when you've been traveling, and, and when I think about East Lansing, I think of what people drink. And I think a lot of energy drinks and coffee. And tea mm-hmm. isn't a big part of, I think, the culture in East Lansing. So talk about where, where you've traveled and, and how that culture may differ but on, based on what people drink and, and how what people drink is a, part of, a big part of culture. When Michael and I first, well, on our honeymoon, I think, we went to Beijing and Beijing in the Imperial Forbidden City. At that time, there was a coffee shop in the center of the Imperial City, a very well-known coffee shop, which is no longer there. But coffee is in Asia. Coffee is in Japan. It's in China. It's in all the green tea fields of Asia. However, tea houses are still primordial. Now you can say, is that because of the culture? Is that because uh, there's caffeine in green tea, caffeine in coffee? I don't know. I think there's a cultural component, but the fact that um, you know my history, the fact that in our tea house we have um, a model ship that's a tea clipper, and many of us with our backgrounds, if we don't have an Indian or Chinese background, we would not drink be consuming tea. We needed the cutty, the tea, sar, tea clippers to bring tea to us. But because of tea and coffee and where we've traveled around Asia, I think uh, it's more cultural. It's something the, the pubs of yesteryear with tea houses. And uh, when you go in, it's more than what you consume. I think it's what you bring into your soul, your heart, and that is the community and the enjoyment over tea and a warm substance. And that can include coffee. And we do also have a an organic, uh, locally roasted tea, uh, coffee, because we realize people also like to enjoy coffee, so there's coffee and tea. And finally, um, talk about some of the events and and, and programs that you offer at Wanderers Tea House. I know you guys have book exchanges and and sometimes language groups and also host um, other events. Can you you talk about some of those? Well, that's really, I wish we had some students here, the heads of some of the clubs that are are bringing individuals in. They think tea goes well with speaking French, tea goes well with speaking Spanish, tea goes well with book groups, tea goes well with drumming, and tea goes well with teaching Tai Chi. So what we've done is really... uh, ask people what are their needs and because we are facing the East Lansing, incredible East Lansing community. There are many individuals from the high schools who come in and say, hey, let's le- learn chess and drink tea. There are many individuals from MSU who come in and say, oh, we would like to speak Russian and have an language ex- exchange and drink so there are many possibilities for the events and activities going on. We just try to listen to our market and our community. Well, on the show is Michael Spano and Elizabeth Marazita, and they are co-owners of Wanderers Tea House here in East Lansing, located on Grand River Avenue. For more information, you can go to wanderersteahouse.com. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Our pleasure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. 
It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. The City of East Lansing is looking into a bike sharing program. To talk about the project is community development analyst Tim Schmidt. Welcome to the show. How are you, Emily? Great. How are you? I'm good. So let's talk about this program. How how do you see this bike program working? Well, let's start um, with a little bit of background. A group of staff, uh, we affectionately call ourselves the Green Team, uh, started actually an employee bike sharing program last year, which is essentially we have put bikes at various municipal buildings so that employees can get to and from lunch, to and from meetings between the buildings without having to pull their car out of the parking garage, which takes more time than it's worth if you're just trying to get down to the 600 block of downtown from City Hall. So as we started putting that together with no budget and you know fixing the bikes ourselves, we realized that a broader effort is probably of some benefit here. And uh, a couple of us know Tim Potter from MSU Bikes pretty well. So um, we started asking around and we're eventually approached by a group that is trying to bring a broader uh, bike sharing effort to the Lansing region. And we gladly jumped right in. So I've heard of numerous bike sharing programs. There's um, the the one, there was one that started first, the first bike sharing program ever in Amsterdam, where they just gave out a bunch of like white bikes and just placed them all over the city. But eventually they were either stolen or you found them in the river. But when I went to Washington, D.C. this fall, they had a bike sharing program there in which you just insert your credit card. You have to pay a deposit in case it gets stolen. Um, or damaged, and then you rent it out for a certain amount of time, and it charges you for that amount of time, and then you put it back, and they're just kind of these little stations that will lock the bike to them. Is that kind of how you're envisioning this happening in East Lansing? Yeah, that's the that's more what the program would be geared towards. I saw a similar system when I was in London last year. They had just rolled out a massive expansion of theirs, and bigger cities tend to have these because the easy way for them to work on gridlock issues uh, in terms of bringing cars off the street. And it helps, you know, make it a better city for tourists as well. I mean, if you can just hop on a bike and leisurely stroll down the Champs-Élysées, I mean, you're going to enjoy Paris a lot more. Um, so that's what we've envisioned. If, if you think about the Lansing region, we have very strong transportation spines. You know, Michigan Avenue is very clearly a major connection between Lansing and East Lansing. Uh, Grand River Avenue then connects both cities as well, but it also then starts to connect out to Okemos and the suburbs beyond. You know, in theory, if you set up bike system along these spines with then uh, sort of satellite offices, if you will, in Old Town and Rio Town, the Moores River Drive area, somewhere along the south side there, um, you start to create a pretty strong infrastructure of biking in the community. You know, Lansing's been recognized as a strong biking community. East Lansing has long been uh, a favorite of bikers. We've we've built bike infrastructure in wherever we can, and we're going to continue to do that. So 
this is just building on that legacy that was started years and years ago. So this is a collaboration with the greater Lansing area. So it's not just about MSU students getting to class. It's about trying to maybe get them out and biking throughout the greater Lansing area to try to discover more things about the city if they're not from Lansing. Yeah, I'm actually not from the region. So um, I have taken it upon myself in conjunction with, uh, you know, the existing efforts that are out there from linking Lansing and you with the Lansing Economic uh, Development Corporation and the other programs that are out there to try and get the students out and about. So it would certainly, from a student perspective, be an easy way for you to get down to the Lug Nuts game or over to the gallery walk in Old Town. Um, so that's really what it is. I mean, it's one of those in, uh, one of those no-brainer regional efforts that, um, you know, the land bank was sort of the beginning impetus behind this, and the Mid-Michigan Environmental Action Council came on board. The city of Lansing came on board. They have Old Town and Rio Town and Downtown are all helping out. And they finally brought us on board as the city of East Lansing, and we're in with both feet. Um, hopefully we can bring MSU along and try to, you know, coordinate efforts there because the larger, the bigger the system you can really get in place, the more sustainable it's going to be. You know, you want it to be set up up front so that there are destinations people want to go to as opposed to just randomly tossing some bikes out and seeing what happens. And how many bikes are you are you thinking about having? And, and when would this plan actually come, come through? That is an excellent question, both. Um, I've said um way too many times. Ultimately, it comes down to finances. I mean, we're at a time when municipal budgets are stretched relatively thin. So we're trying to do this and, and look for grants and look for other ways to finance this besides using taxpayer dollars, really. Um, there it is again. <laughs> the, uh, the hope is really to set up several, I think, along Michigan Avenue. And then, like I mentioned, obviously Old Town is a clear destination. Downtown Lansing will obviously be a destination. Downtown East Lansing, you could certainly support multiple stations on campus if you get to that point. So I think if you look at an overall system, ultimately you could have several hundred bikes in a system like this. Now, starting it off, you're probably looking at a two-digit two digit number as opposed to a three-digit number, but strategically placing those and hopefully getting them out to where people start using them and the system can grow itself. In terms of timing, we'd love to have had it done yesterday. Uh, we had a, a demonstration in town um, about a month ago that seemed to have gone phenomenally well. The the company that one of the companies that we're looking at in terms of suppliers said it went really well, and it was one of their most popular demonstrations. Um, so hopefully we can build off that and start to fun identify those funding sources and get it into place. You know, if not still this year, hopefully beginning of next year. So in the studio is Community Development Analyst of the City of East Lansing, Tim Schmidt. And where can people go to keep updated with this process? It's That's a good question because it's a fairly nebulous process at this point. The website is capitalcitybikeshare, I believe, .com. Um, the City of East Lansing, obviously, as we move forward, we'll have information on our website, and Mid-Michigan Environmental Action Council is another great resource for this because they're certainly, you know, this is definitely a part of their, their creed and they're trying to push this as well. So they're definitely putting the information out there in their newsletters and on their website. Well, again, in the studio is Community Development Analyst of the City of East Lansing, Tim Schmidt, and he was here to talk about the bike sharing program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Emily. And speaking of 
touring around the Greater Lansing area. Each year, people flock to explore the streets of places far from home, soaking up the history of the Appian Way, the lights of Broadway, and the sunshine of Rodeo Drive. In October, Lansing native Arianico O'Mara began to explore foreign streets, that is, the foreign streets of Lansing. O'Mara is on a crusade to walk down every city street in Lansing. Impact Exposure's Emmanuel Berry joined her on a stroll through Lansing's West Side neighborhood, and here's the interview. So the first question I have for you is, why are you doing this? (laughs) Uh, Lansing needs a little shot in the arm sometimes, and I think that there's a lot of fantastic things going on in Lansing that might be neglected or hidden behind some of the negative stories that are being brought out. And I thought by doing it this way, by hitting every single street, I can find everything, whether it's good or bad, and and write about it and blog about it and photograph it if I can. That house is just, I mean, you can see how, like, majestic and gorgeous it used to be, kind of. Yeah. There's so much history in Lansing. It's so, um, I lived in Richmond, Virginia for a while, and they're just so proud of their heritage. And then I come up here, and we have sort of like a, a cowboy settler kind of history going on with, like, G- the Oldsmobile people coming up here, and, and that to me is sort of more unique than what's going on down south but you know i love the michigan history and the lansing history and it's fun to explore it so about how long have you been doing this it's been about nine months october 1st was when i came out for the first time um so and i walk about maybe two times every week if i can now you are from lansing area you've lived in this area your entire life So what's it like kind of being in an area that's something relatively familiar, but then discovering new things at the same time? Yeah, I, being that I grew up here, I tend to have specific places that I would go to, like the neighborhood I grew up in, uh, and parts that I like, like downtown, old town, uh, my grandparents' house, my husband's parents' house. But there's a lot of other parts of Lansing that I would just never go to. And this makes me go to places that are foreign to me, even though it's my hometown. Can you talk a little bit about some of those places that you've discovered that are new, I guess, to you? Uh, yeah, there was a, a section off from 127 and 496 right to the west of uh, Frandor that I found was just this amazing neighborhood that I never knew was even there. The houses are gorgeous, the landscaping is beautiful, and it's a very quiet, remote neighborhood, even though it's divided by all these highways. So you've you've traveled. I mean, I guess you've walked all over Lansing at this point, and in different neighborhoods. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the diversity of the types of neighborhoods that you've been through? Yeah, that was one of the biggest surprises. I would find a neighborhood where it was very serene, and within a block, it could deteriorate into properties that were maybe not taken care of as well as the other neighborhood. And it was a little bit shocking to me. So I, as I walk, I try to maybe come up with ideas as to why certain neighborhoods aren't doing as well as others. Um, more like, I'm a, I have a degree in psychology, so it's, that's always playing in my head. You've seen a lot of different places, but talk a little bit about some of the neighborhoods that are familiar, like places you've visited where, you know, you've grown up and you have these kind of childhood memories. What's it like to go back to those neighborhoods now? That's a little interesting. I grew up in the north side of town, so I went to Geyer Park, Otto, and Eastern. Um, going back to some of the neighborhoods that I was, that I'd ride my bikes through or we would play, I would find that I would recreate some of the behaviors that I did as a child without even realizing it. Like there are parts in 
the street where this is where you crossed. And I would just automatically fall into those behaviors I had as a little kid. So it's, it's really exciting going back to some of my old neighborhoods as a child. One of my favorite parts is doing that. Now, right now we're walking through the neighborhood that's kind of by Sexton High School. Can you talk a little bit, I guess, about your method when you walk, what you're looking for, and what you do? A lot of it I just take in what I see. I try not to really judge or, you know, over-critique. It's sort of I just look and it's like an empty or a, a canvas, and I'm just sort of exploring what's going on. I'll, I'll notice the nicer neighborhood or the, you know, the little in, the, the little quirky things about neighborhoods. Or Yeah. <laughs> Like the little kitten right there. <laughs> and I just, um, I don't know, I try to just get absorbed into what I'm walking through. And, and I'm not really familiar with this neighborhood. I don't really, I have never walked through here before. So it's sort of like a, a new little wandering to see what's going on. Sometimes you see a house and it's just, wow. Yeah. There's a couple. I mean, the stonework on that house yeah. right there, I just... <laughs> Yeah, that's what my husband said to me when I was trying to come up with the ideas for this. He was like, you know what? Every single property somebody has picked to own, you know, whether it's a business or a homeowner, and that's like their little castle. And I think everybody needs to sort of have a representation of what, you know, what they're sharing with people or what they have. And so, I mean, you can look at this property and you can tell that they really love their home and it's just a beautiful little yeah, home I mean, with the, the stonework and the flowers. And, yeah. <clears throat> And then on the converse side, you can see homes that were maybe neglected. And then I try to think, you know, well, what could help them? Like, I've noticed some of the more poverty-stricken homes tend to have a lot of trash buildup. And I've been wanting to communicate with a couple people, maybe Granger, and see if we could work on a trash program where we can help reduce some of their trash load. So talk a little bit about the method that you use to choose the neighborhoods that you walk in. Sometimes it's just location. If I happen to be in a certain place or there's a certain function going on in Lansing, I'll try to make my walk coordinate with that. Um, sometimes it's just a feeling, oh, I feel like walking in that neighborhood. Sometimes it's like, oh, my gosh, I haven't done the south side yet. I need to get down to the south side and do that street. So, Many people are kind of done with Lansing or they think they've seen it all. There's nothing left here. From your experience walking and, and going around this neighborhood, what, what would you have to say to that kind of idea? There's a lot of areas that are being rejuvenated, which we've taken these neighborhoods who might have had uh, situations going on in them where there was poverty or houses were being neglected, and a lot of groups are coming in and trying to fix up places, and a lot of homeowners are starting to become really proud of their neighborhoods and starting community groups to uh, bring more people to those neighborhoods and helping to improve the quality of life in those neighborhoods. So I think... I think you have to really come back and relook at it. Like I said, I grew up here, and there's still, I don't know, 90, 80% of the places I've never been. And like Cooley Gardens, never been there. So it was just really exciting to be able to go to a place that's been here forever and just explore it for the first time. It's like a big treasure hunt. Do you think that you've kind of created a stronger connection with Lansing because of this project? Absolutely. I There's parts where I'm like, I really love that area, like Old Town specifically. Um, but yeah, I'll walk, and as we or as we drive around town, I'm, I walk that street, or that street's got such and such a place on it, or you know, just there's a community effort going on there, like uh, Allen Street, the farmers market, yeah. and and the gardens and the park, and I was amazed by the community center over there. That's just really helping out the people over there and hoping to make their lives easier and, and better. Do you have a favorite walk or a favorite place you visited thus far? 
I do have to say Old Town is my favorite, and I'm always saying Old Town, so I'm going to have to come up with something <laughs> new. Um, I, I really like walking in my Geyer Park neighborhood. Um, I liked uh, Michigan Avenue Corridor, uh, Washington Square, the Capitol. Just, I mean, if you wanted to see something magnificent, go down to the Capitol and just walk around and look at the buildings. It's real, like the one we're coming up to, that Justice Building is just magnificent. Um, yeah, come at it at fresh eyes so that you can see it instead of just, oh, that's that big building we always drive past. Stop and look at it. There's signs, there's people, there's activities going on. There's always something new. What is your hope for this project? What do you hope to gain on a personal level and maybe a professional level by doing this? Hmm. To gain, <clears throat> when I'm finished, I will be one of the only people who has traveled every single street in Lansing. I don't know that there's a whole lot of people that can say that. Um, I'll have a mental and even a statistical analysis of everywhere in the city. To me, that's kind of priceless. And then I'll have photos to associate with those areas as well. And then my blogs, I'm, that's to me was a complete surprise writing about all of these and how much that fulfilled something inside of me that I didn't realize I really wanted to express. I've always been a writer and I like to do it, and this was just such an amazing chance to do that. And that was Arianico O'Meara speaking with Impact Exposure's Emmanuel Barry. O'Meara is on a crusade to saunter down every street in Lansing. To follow her journey, you can check out her blog at citysaunter at arianico.wordpress.com, and her name is spelled A-R-I-N-I-K-O. And up next is a feature about film scoring by Sean Bayless. Welcome. Today's discussion is on the topic of film scoring. To guide listeners in this experience is Nathan Sandberg. Mr. Sandberg was a founding member of indie rock group Anathalo and earned his master's in film scoring at Columbia College. I think I really enjoy the collaborative process of it all. And so there's just this amazing feeling at the end when you, you get your DVD or, or Blu-ray or whatever and it has your music on it, and you watch through it, and so many different people worked on this thing, but, you know, it's this great film. The early years of film found music struggling to keep up. Musicians played in-house along with the show. So music started being paired with film when they had these really early silent films, and they wanted something to be sort of showing you uh, what's going on in the film besides just the picture, so they added music to it, and there's guys who played you know, organ, or there's all sorts of crazy instruments that were created just for this purpose. As sound on film was created in the early 20s, directors could add sound in to the film reel. This created a revolution in filmmaking. As the art started to develop, people realized that um, music has this emotional subconscious pull that the film itself and the dialogue itself can't really get the, the audience to feel. Now directors began to invest in the theory of sound, starting with where exactly it comes from. They did mostly what's called diegetic music, meaning that if there was music playing along in the film, it was coming from a source inside of the film. So like, if you heard music, there was a band playing in, in the back of the scene or something or someone turned on the radio. Eventually, 
music was created to exist outside of the film, to provide an emotional undertone beneath the images. Appropriately, this music was called the underscore and required its own set of guiding principles. The basic idea is that any any sort of important character or important idea, you can sort of write a theme about that character or idea that represents, you know, the the character or idea, <laughs> and then you can develop that theme musically and uh, play it at the right moment in order to sort of enhance the emotional impact of whatever is happening on the screen. These themes are the meat of the score, and are usually immediately recognizable after only a few notes. Bernard Herrmann sort of stole the idea of cell technique, which is basically taking a small little, um, a small little musical idea, very short, like maybe just a couple of beats or a measure long. And basically, just using that throughout the entire score, and, and expanding these cells and putting them on top of each other in order to write the music. This technique is easily seen in the score for Star Wars by the great John Williams. A theme called the Force is introduced as Luke looks out over Tatooine. And later, at the end of the film, at the awards ceremony. Composers soon learned that a catchy theme wasn't all there was to film scoring. The best scores are the ones that they're good music, but they tie in perfectly with all the thematic ideas and action that's happening in the film. The best way for composers to create a satisfying and anthemic score is to sit down with the director in a spotting session. In these sessions, points are picked out where cues, the film equivalent to a song, are going to be dropped. This is often done by temp tracking, whereby a temporary score the director likes will be used as a guideline for the composer. In Star Wars, George Lucas used Gustav Holst's *The Planets*. Sometimes the temp is so perfect that directors develop what is called temp love by Richard Davis of the Berklee College of Music, and the end result, such as *Rebel Blockade Runner* by John Williams, is almost indistinguishable from the temp. Besides knowing how to write a score and how to work with a director, there are more skills involved with breaking into the scoring market. There's not a lot of people who are more classically trained and understand how to write for a full orchestra and how to orchestrate, and even fewer people who know all that and then also know, you know, more audio production stuff as well. And in this market climate, production quality means the difference between getting a job and losing one. You can you can write a four-bar loop and loop it over and over, and if it sounds awesome, you know you can get a job easily just from that. That's almost more important right now than 
actual good music is. But video games have brought an entirely new dynamic to the market, opening up doors that were previously shut to composers. The process is similar in video game scoring, but instead of sort of scoring moment by moment what's happening, you obviously can't do that because it's it's a more open world in a video game. And a lot of times it's sort of atmosphere-based. You sort of score the, the setting of the particular level or whatever. You can either make it more aggressive sounding or... Uh, more energetic or whatever, depending on what's happening in the game. But just like in the film scoring industry, the business side of video games can be hard to crack. Marty O'Donnell and Michael Salvatore, the composers for all three Halo video games, were only chosen because they had already worked in Bungie Studios on the 1993 mega-hit Myst. The way to get into it is to uh, meet the sort of the creative head of the video game of uh, you know the video game project. Um, there's a there's shockingly few of those guys that are sort of making lots of money. If you know them, you're you're sort of good in the industry. From movies to television to video games, music has evolved as a complementary art. It activates new emotions and depth in stories, but it is no easy business. There is much time and effort that goes into creating the score, marketing, and finally making sure that it will take the art to the next level. Every once in a while there's an amazing composer that writes something that changes the way people feel about music. Next time a game is played or a film is watched, take note of the emotion nuanced from what you hear, not what you see. Special thanks to Nathan Sandberg. Additional material by John Williams, Aneo Morricone, Marty O'Donnell, Michael Salvatore, and Gustav Holst. I'm Sean Bayless. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. This week's Michigan Storytelling segment features Bonnie Campbell. She was a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction, and she is here to read an excerpt of one of her stories as well as talk about her work as a Michigan writer. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. So how did you become a writer? What inspired you to write? Well, I'd always wanted to write, like many people have from the time I was about 14. Um, but I I kept trying and I kept realizing I wasn't very good. And every time I figured out I wasn't very good, then I went and did something else. And so I traveled the world for a while as much as, you, as, as, as I could as a poor kid. And then for a while I studied mathematics. And uh, I was going to uh, – I was getting my Ph.D. in mathematics and I suddenly found myself weeping all the time. 
And I found that the only thing that made me not weep was writing. <laughs> so I managed to figure out that I, I took a writing class and I figured out that that's what I should at least try to do, um, try to make my life's work. At least I knew I could make it a hobby. So that I started studying writing at Western Michigan University. And so I got my MFA there and um, it's all gone fairly well. <laughs> So I heard that you did a lot of interesting things. I don't know if this is when you were becoming a writer or before you're a writer, but you've um, hitchhiked across the U.S. and Canada. You've biked the Swiss Alps. You've traveled with a circus for a while. <laughs> how does that? How do you think those experiences influence your writing? Well, like I said, I knew that when I was a youngin, which is when I did most of this stuff, a youngin being under thirty. Um, I kind of knew I wasn't that good of a writer, so I thought I should go out and get as much experience as I can. So that's what I did. I went out and found adventure. And now that I have figured out how to write, I hardly have adventures because I'm always sitting writing. <laughs> so how much do you think Michigan influences um, your work as a writer and, and the stories that you tell? Um, everything. In fact, that's how I figured out how to write was when I learned to tell the stories of people in Michigan. I used to try to write about generic people or city people or Chicago people. And when I finally figured out that I should write about my own tribe, it clicked into place. And I knew the stories that I wanted to tell. And um, so ever since I figured that out, and also there was another realization about writing. It was the discovery that writing is mostly hard work. It doesn't take brilliance. It doesn't even take a fabulously uh, clever mind. It just takes hard work for the most part. It takes a good idea and then a bunch of hard work. And so those two things were the, what made me become a writer. So you have a new book coming out this summer called Once Upon a River. Can you talk about what this book is about? Yep. It's a book about a girl who... Um, who has trouble at home and basically manages to lose her parents. How careless of her, yes, you might say. But she's she can't stay with her relatives for reasons that become obvious in the book, so she takes off onto the river. She's a girl who loves the river. She's always loved swimming in the river and rowing on the river. And so the story really is a river odyssey of a girl searching for her lost mother and having a lot of adventures along the way. So you brought a short story to tell. Um, can you read it for us as well as give us the context that surrounds it? Yeah, let me say uh, just a bit about my book of short stories, American Salvage. Um, it's a collection of stories about um, men and machines in Michigan. And I was very interested in um, seeing how men, men who working class men were dealing with um, this movement shall we say, to the information age or the 21st century. And so I was investigating the lives of men for whom that transition was not going smoothly. And what I found myself writing about a lot was job loss and then also methamphetamine abuse. I found that um, this was somehow affecting a lot of people in Michigan. And so um, this is a story about a man who has trouble with his wife, who has trouble with methamphetamine. And I'll warn you in advance, this is kind of a harsh story. And I've had people, actually, when I'm reading this story in a library, walk out. Um, but it's a very short story, and I, I would ask that you just trust me trust me and follow where the story is going. I mean, it's a story that's born out of frustration 
of the protagonist. And um, it's also, I'll, I'll say, by the end, a story of love. So it's called The Solutions to Brian's Problem. Solution number one. Connie said she was going out to the store to buy formula and diapers. While she's gone, load up the truck with the surround sound home entertainment system and your excellent collection of power tools. Put the baby girl in the car seat and drive away from this home you built with your own hands. Expect that after you leave, she will break all the windows in this living room, including the big picture window, as well as the big mirror over the fireplace, which you've already replaced twice. The furnace will run and run. Solution number two. Wait until Connie comes back from the store, in quotation marks, distract her with the baby, and then cut her meth with Drano so that when she shoots it up, she dies. Solution number four. Just go. Head south where it's warm. Contact the union about getting a job with another local. Pretend not to have a wife and baby. When put to the test, Connie might well rise to the occasion of motherhood. Resist taking any photographs along with you, especially the photographs of your baby at every age. Wipe your mind clear of memories, especially the memory of your wife first telling you she was pregnant and how that pregnancy and her promise to stay clean made everything seem possible. The two of you kept holding hands that night. You couldn't stop reaching for each other, even in your sleep. She lost that baby and the next one, and although you suspected the reason, you kept on trying. Solution number six, call a helpline, talk to a counselor, explain that last week your wife stabbed you in the chest while you were sleeping, that she punches you too, giving you black eyes that you have to explain to the guys at work. Explain to the counselor you're in danger of losing your job, your house, your baby. Tell her Connie has sold your mountain bike and some of your excellent power tools already. Try to be patient when the counselor seems awkward in her responses, when she inadvertently expresses surprise at the nature of your distress, especially when you admit that Connie's only five foot one. Expect the counselor to be even less supportive when you say, hell yes, you hit her back. Then realize that the counselor probably has caller ID. Hope that the counselor doesn't call social services because a baby girl needs her mama. Assure the counselor that Connie is a good mama. She's good with the baby. The baby is in no danger. Solution number seven. Make dinner for yourself and your wife with the hamburger in the fridge. Sloppy Joe's, maybe, or goulash with the stewed tomatoes your mother canned. Your mother, who, like the rest of your family, thinks your wife is just moody. You haven't told them the truth because it's too much to explain. And it's too much to explain that, yes, you knew she had this history when you married her, but you thought you could kick it together. You thought that love could mend all broken things. Wasn't that the whole business of love? Mix up some bottles of formula for later tonight when you will be sitting in the living room feeding the baby, watching the door of the bathroom behind which your wife will be searching for a place in her vein that has not hardened or collapsed. When she finally comes out, brush her hair back from her face 
and try to get her to eat something. And that was Michigan author Bonnie Cantbell reading from her book of short stories, American Salvage. So I understand that counselors sometimes use the excerpt that you just read. I this is yeah, this is a complete story. Um, the solutions to Brian's problem, and I I I read this at a library, or I I did a reading at a library, and and a counselor came up to me and said, you know, we've been using this where I work because it. Um, a lot of people who are in situations where they have to deal with addicts find themselves wanting to find themselves wanting to go to extreme measures to in dealing with these addicts and they're afraid to admit it and so in a story like this where we're inside the head of a person who is one by one considering all these possible options and then in the end choosing the option of kindness um even though it's not going to make his life any easier, um, I guess that's helpful. And what influenced you to write this, something so harsh? I mean, just the the topic itself. Yeah, well, I did, like I said, I found myself writing a lot about methamphetamine because a lot of people who are in my, I I call it my tribe, the people that I write about, there are people in this group of people who are involved in methamphetamine, and I just kept seeing the pain whenever there were children involved. It just became so pain, unbearably painful, no matter what the outcome, whether whether the situation ended up in law enforcement or whether it ended up in child, you know, issues of child custody. I just kept seeing these painful situations, and even just reading the newspaper, it continually kept arising. And so I wanted to envision um, maybe the worst possible situation and trying to figure I guess I'm I'm interested that we're always taught to be problem solvers and we're taught I think in 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 America of today that there always are solutions to problems and so I guess I was interested in a problem that didn't seem to have any certainly no easy solution and maybe no no good solution at all and so it was so painful though that I found myself to eat found myself wanting to resort to a structure like this listing the solutions. So turning this most difficult situation into a list was kind of perverse and kind of helpful to write it. So have you found, since counselors use some of your work, have you found that you've been able to positively positively influence um, some of your readers? I don't know. <laughs> That's the thing. When you're a writer, you 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 would like to change. I would like to change the world and make it better with every story I write. And I can, I can be hopeful that some stories make some tiny, small difference, but um, I, I can't really know. <laughs> I think that for writers, we can't really even know if our stories matter or are important for a long time. Well, in the studio is Bonnie Campbell. She is a Michigan author, and her book, American Savage, was a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction. Bonnie, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Emily. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.